All right, if you've got your Bible, I encourage you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Our hope is to finish chapter 2 this morning. We've taken our time so far in 1 Peter, and that's been by design. Jason has been explaining to the kids that God's, God's people are special. And we talked a couple weeks ago about ordinary stuff in a museum, like it's not a big deal except that it belonged to someone famous. A baseball card is only worth a lot of money because someone important is stamped on that. God's people are important because we are His, because we belong to Him. And because we belong to Him, because He has made us new, now we as His people, we do different things, new things than we didn't do before. And Peter has been pointing out practical ways in which Christians do that, like explaining how we fit the new life into our old relationships. And so last week we talked about how we're supposed to interact with governing authorities. Today we're going to talk about, it's not a direct correlation, but we're going to talk about in the workplace, bosses and employees, servants, masters. Next week we will have the joy of looking at husbands and wives and how husbands and wives are to respond to each other now that we've been made new. And then really through the end of the rest of the the book, it's kind of how to relate to one another in the church. And Christians in all of these things trust in the sovereign wisdom and purposes of God. And because we trust in the sovereign wisdom and purposes of God, we submit to his authority willingly. If we're not, then there's a problem. Because we trust him or should trust him in this way, we also recognize that it's God is, God is the one who establishes these authorities that he's, that he's talking about, that Peter is laying out here. God's the one who establishes them. And he calls us to submit to them. And last week I, I pointed out uh, what I hoped was a, a helpful handful of examples from the Old Testament where men and women disobeyed earthly authority because those earthly authorities were telling them to do something that went against God's authority. I'll mention one of those again today. But Christians can't submit to earthly authority when it goes against God's authority, right? That's what we just said. In those cases, as Peter and John put it, we must obey God rather than man. If those are my options, right, and and I don't know what's coming in the world There may be more and more times when for a Christian, those are our only options. If that time comes, we need to be prepared as God's people to say, we have to obey God rather than you, rather than man. We need divine wisdom to do this well, though, because there are clear instructions and examples for when God's people are told to submit to earthly authorities. Clear, crystal clear. We're going to talk about one today. But there are also pretty clear examples of times when people were forced to disobey their earthly authorities. Now, one immensely significant thing I think we need to remember as we go, and I'll probably try to call our minds back to this maybe every week, but look back at the end of chapter 1, verse 24 and 25. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower Of grass, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. That's what I want to call our minds back to as we discuss these things today. Because in the reality, the reality is in our world, especially in our country, laws can change, can't they? Sometimes for the better, sometimes not, sometimes for worse. 
authorities that are over us are replaced, whether that's in the government or whether that's in the workplace. And certainly there are different kind of schools of thought when it comes to leading in those different realms. But God's word remains the same regardless of any of those changes from generation to generation. And I think this is why the psalmist in Psalm 146, verse 3 says, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. Or Psalm 20, verse 7, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in what? The name of the Lord our God. So while we are to submit to authority that God has placed over us, in most instances, we still trust in the name of the Lord rather than them because guess what? They mess up. They fail, and sometimes spectacularly so. Look at verse 13 of chapter 2. Verse 13 tells us why we submit to earthly authority when God calls us to for the Lord's sake. So it's not just a strict, rigid adherence to a command. This is not legalism. This is for the Lord's sake. This is for conscience' sake. And as much as it might make us bristle a little bit at the thought of submission to authority, we can't escape the fact that God is the one who institutes authority in our lives on all of these levels. And if we refuse to submit properly to God, we will not submit properly to anybody else. And so that's where we left off last week. I pointed out last week two what I consider to be kind of key and connecting verses, and they're verse 12 and 15. You can glance at those. Verse 12 and 15, they remind us that the Christian's honorable conduct in the midst of possibly even persecution speaks volumes and is actually an evangelistic tool that God uses for his own glory, that some might see our good works in the midst of the fire and turn their hearts toward, and their hearts be turned towards God. Our natural inclination, inclination is not that way though, is it? When you've been treated unfairly, you're not all that content to just sit there and take it, are you? Our pride rises up. Maybe some anger begins to rise up. We begin to say, man, this is unfair. And we, we, we tend to think, well, if, if I'm treated unfairly, then surely I'm allowed to rebel. I'm allowed to resist and disregard everything that this authority has to say. In our culture today, that's praised. That is lifted up more than submission, resistance. Now, to be clear, there are absolute, absolutely certain times when you cannot stay in a bad situation and you must leave, at least for a moment, at least for a time. There are times to get out. But fleeing at the first hint of difficulty at the first hint of unfairness, was not the mindset of the people in the examples that we talked about last week. It wasn't Jesus' own example, and it's not Peter's instruction to Christians in his letter here either. Remember, God's new people are doing new things. And so this takes us to where we're at today, this already established relationship that Peter mentions, and his words are servant and master. Okay, we don't have as much a direct correlation between this, but you can think about this in the workplace. You can think about this where there is authority over others, where a lot of people are under authority. So let's read verses 18 through 25 and then pray. <clears throat> First Peter two eighteen, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. 
For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the judge who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful as your people that your word never changes. God, it seems like every day we turn on the news, there is something new that we're faced with, oftentimes morally. But Lord, your word never changes. We have a a solid foundation on what to know is right and wrong, good and evil, light and darkness. And may it only come from what your word says, not what anyone else says. Lord, I thank you for my brother James who is preaching now at Grassy Creek. I pray your blessing be on him and that you give him boldness to speak your word just as we are hearing your word spoken here today. Thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you may not remember this, but all the way back in 2020, which kind of seems like forever ago, but kind of seems like just a blink, in 2020, in the summertime, we were finishing up in the book of Ephesians. And we were looking at Ephesians chapter 6, and I kind of revisited that because in, in that section, Paul gives instructions to servants and masters. And so I wanted to kind of just get a good balance of what our New Testament is, is telling us. And I was really struck by the similarities of really the whole book of Ephesians with First Peter. Think about this. Let me just kind of give you some topics here. Ephesians chapter 4 through the middle of chapter 5 is Paul's instructions to the church body. Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 are instructions to husbands and wives. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 is instructions to parents and children. And then Ephesians 6, 5 through 9 is instructions to servants and masters. We're going to cover all of those topics here in First Peter as well. It's almost like Peter and Paul had the same mentor. So in in Paul's words, the Ephesian Christians, he tells them, he says, bondservants, obey your masters. And not just when they're watching, but all the time. As if you are working for Christ. Serve under the authority that you're under as if you're serving Jesus. Because you are. You are serving the Lord. He says in Ephesians 6 verse 7, rendering service to the master with good will as to the Lord. Now the word Paul uses in Ephesians 6 for bondservant is actually a little different from the word that Peter uses here in 2 verse 18. Paul uses the word doulos, which means a slave. And that could be an involuntary slave where they were born into that, forced into that, or whether voluntary. And 
If, if you're kind of curious about some of those details, you can go back through the archive and our sermons on the website and get to this section on Ephesians chapter 6 and listen. But that could be voluntarily put into slave um, slavery or involuntarily. Peter's word that he used here is, is different. It means kind of more just a household servant. Peter does use the word doulos that Paul used in verse 16 when he's instructing Christians to use their freedom not to use their freedom as a cover-up for evil. You can't use your freedom to God, freedom in Christ as a cover-up to do evil. Your slavery, your bot, like tie to Jesus can't be an excuse to sin, is what he's saying. Instead, live as bondservants, as servants to God. So Christians shouldn't continue to serve the old master of sin, but instead should, should submit themselves to their new master, who's God. You have a new master. Guys, when Jesus talks about being free, he's, he means being free from our old self, our old sin, the bondage of that to sin and death. But you know what? We're still bondservants to the Lord. Both Peter and Paul use the word servant, though, to mean subject under a master. You are under someone else's authority. Now, thinking about the time in which Peter lived, the area in which Peter lived, many of the people that he would be addressing would have fallen into the category of servant or even slave, maybe. I read this week that some historians even calculate that half or maybe even more than half of all of the people in the Roman Empire were in a servant position. Okay, think about that as Peter's writing this to them. That means that many maybe even most of the people that Peter is writing to that are hearing these words were not what we would consider as free. There were as many servants as there were free men. But I don't think this should come as a surprise to us that Peter was writing to a group of people like this. Think about Jesus. Think about who he hung out with. Who did he spend time with? Sinners and poor people, right? Outcasts. Is it any wonder then that many of these followers in the early church would be from that background, would be in that kind of a group? This group that Peter is writing to would have been maybe the most numerous group of people in the Roman Empire. So Peter is called, inspired by the Spirit, to write these words to this really marginalized group of people, even though they are maybe the, the majority. Now, if there's that many people... In the homes of Romans who would be considered free, what could their testimony mean? One commentator I read said their lives, the lives of these servants in the homes, their lives would be a daily sermon in the houses of their masters. What a force for good. I know it's not cool to quote yourself, but I'm going to quote myself from my sermon in Ephesians 6 just because I think it's helpful in what we're talking about, and I just needed to be reminded of it. So this is, this is what I mentioned back in Ephesians 6 in the sermon there. I said, nowhere does Paul or Peter or any other biblical author condone or endorse the abuse of power. Paul instructs believing servants to treat their masters as they would treat Jesus. And he instructs masters to treat their servants as they would treat Jesus. Do you see the theme here? Since servant and master are both living under the authority of God, how they relate to one another should be forever changed. That's still the case in 2022, even in our culture. 
So Peter and Paul are instructing Christians on how to behave as new people in whatever situation they find themselves. And Peter gets right to that. Look at chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. He's, he's saying this. He's saying if you find yourself under the authority of someone else, and every one of us is under authority, right? Then submit to sell yourselves to them as respectfully as you can. He says, with all respect. Now, I think the same rule of thumb applies here too. If your master, boss, authority figure asks you to do something that God says you can't or shouldn't, then you must obey God rather than men. Peter goes on to add what I kind of at first glance just think is a seemingly impossible clause to this instruction. With all respect, submit to them, be subject with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. Everything we do as Christians ought to bear the mark of being a Christ follower, including obedience and maybe any necessary disobedience. So here's just a question that popped in my mind, so I thought I'd answer it this morning. How, how do you disobey a person while still respecting them, while still uh, respecting their authority? Consider Daniel in Daniel chapter 6. I mentioned this verse last week, but I don't think I read it to you. Daniel was unjustly accused. I mean, he actually did what he was accused of doing. He was praying every day, and King Darius was on the throne, kind of a foolish guy. He was tricked into passing a law that said, you can only pray to me, to the king, because they knew, people knew that Daniel would pray to the Lord, and so they had him thrown into the lion's den. The king realizes he's tricked, is heartbroken, but also he can't go back on the law. And so he says, all right, we got to do this. So they threw Daniel in the lion's den. And if you know the story, you know that Daniel didn't die. He lived. And so the king couldn't sleep a wink that night, Bible says. And at first light, he goes to the den. He calls down in there. And here's Daniel's response. Remember, Daniel is still sitting with the lions. And he says this to the king. O king live forever. My God sent his angels and shut the lion's mouths and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with King Nebuchadnezzar. Peter and John in Acts 4 and 5 that we looked at last week. Stephen in Acts chapter 7 before he is stoned to death. All disobey with respect. There's no disrespect found in those stories. These men did not bow the knee to evil authority, but they weren't disrespectful in their disobedience. So the way that we show respect to unjust authority is the same way I would say that children honor an unbelieving parent or the same way believing spouses treat their unbelieving spouses. They submit to the position of authority. And we'll talk a little bit more about this next week and with husbands and wives. They sub- we submit to the position of authority. And remember, Paul and Peter both make it really clear. There is no authority on earth that's not been established by God. None. Romans 13 is crystal clear on that. In different, in different levels of government, in the workplace, in the home, in the church, God has established roles within these realms And he calls his children to submit to them in varying ways as expressed in what is described as his enduring word here. 
So in every one of these realms, let me just point this out. In every one of those realms that I just mentioned, in government, workplace, in the home, in the church, in all of those realms, God has spoken very clearly to Christians who are under authority, but also to the Christians who are in authority in those places. And his words are usually less particular about the day in and day out kind of details and more particular about the character and conduct of those people. Peter addresses the reality that maybe you all face five days a week in many situations. What do we do when Christians find themselves under the authority of a bad boss? Or as Peter puts it, an unjust boss. If you look that word unjust up, it actually means crooked, warped. What happens when you find yourself under that kind of authority? Now there are some fantastic parents out there. There are some excellent bosses and fantastic church leaders But every one of them are prone to wander, are prone to make mistakes and fail. So then can we say, well, because they are a bad boss, they failed. Now I don't have to obey them at all. Can we say that? Well, I don't think we can, according to Peter. Again, unless they're asking you to disobey God, I don't think we can just say that. We submit to the position of authority because that position has been established by God, whether it's your parents, whether it's your boss, or whether it's high up government official. We submit to that authority because of the position that they're in. Even when they don't act as well as we might think they should. Look at verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Gracious here, it says this is a gracious thing. Gracious means acceptable, favorable, worthy even. This is a worthy thing. Mindful of God has a similar meaning to verse 13 when Peter is saying, for the Lord's sake, right? So Peter is saying that a wor- it's a worthy thing to endure the difficulty of suffering unjustly for the Lord's sake. And I think he'll explain why in just a minute. But first we got to ask, is Peter serious right now? For real? Like we're supposed to submit to this guy, to this girl, knowing who they are and what they've done? Isn't God a God of justice? Is Peter telling us that we should just be okay with injustice by sitting and taking it? I think we should keep going because I think the text helps us here. Look at verse 20. Peter explains a bit more. He says, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So if you get caught at work taking extended lunch breaks and then get reprimanded for it, you deserve to be punished. You're cheating the company out of time. You actually deserve that discipline. You know, students, if you, if you find out, if it's found out that you cheated on a test and you get a zero for that test, is that unfair? No. That's justice. That is fair. That's actually fair. So what he's, what Peter is getting at is he's making the point that suffering punishment as a result of sin, it isn't all that extraordinary. But when you endure or when you persevere or when you have fortitude in the midst of unjust suffering, punishment that you actually didn't deserve, when you do that, that's where something special happens. That's when something special occurs. What's so special? Peter tells us, verse 21 through 23, what's so special is that you look like Jesus. You emulate Jesus. Verse 21 says, to this you have been called. Can you Can you believe Peter saying that? You have been called to suffer like Jesus. 
I have yet to see that on a commitment card at a church. That it says, do you understand you're going to suffer like Jesus? I've never seen that. But this is what Peter says. This, to this you have been called to suffer as Jesus suffered. He left you an example, Peter says, so that you might follow in his steps. And then Peter goes on to describe Jesus' example in suffering. Look at what he says. It says, first off, that he committed no sin. We'll come back to that. It says, no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So going back to the first thing, Peter, he, or Jesus committed no sin. This is the proper perspective that Peter is trying us to look through. The sinless son of God had genuinely done nothing wrong. Never entertained a sinful thought. Verse 22 says he didn't ever do anything wrong. It also says that he never said anything wrong. No deceit found in his mouth. Remember, it's not just, it's not just that he was sinless in a general, general sense, although he was. It wasn't just that he was sinless when facing punishment for wrongdoing. Jesus was sinless in the face of unjust persecution. And you are called to the same. But can any of us claim that we are without sin? No. Surely not. So Peter is pleading with us, with you, with me. Many of us who are under authority, and some of us who are under unjust authority, he's pleading with us to remember our true master, Jesus Christ. Remember your true master. Remember Christ, who himself bore injustice, false accusations, ridicule, and great physical, emotional, and spiritual suffering. And think about this too. Peter may be more fit to talk about sufferings of the Messiah than anyone else. Just think about Peter's connection with Jesus and how he saw the unjust sufferings of Jesus. Peter was with him in the garden that night where he prayed so earnestly that he literally sweat drops of blood, which is a physical phenomenon that does occur. And yet, even seeing that intense distress, Peter also saw Jesus submit himself freely to the will of his Father. Peter was also there right after that when Judas betrayed him. And Peter, in that moment, probably full of confusion, watched Jesus submit himself to the authorities of those guards who came to seize him. Peter saw Jesus bound, made fun of, spit on, beaten, ridiculed, scorned. And he also witnessed Jesus' meekness under insult and injustice. He saw how he said nothing. Undoubtedly, Peter realized his own betrayal of Jesus in this. I think that's really where it hit home for him. He realized how he had betrayed his Lord, but he also saw after Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to the disciples several times, he saw Jesus' own restoration back to himself. Remember when he said, do you love me? three times who was the first guy at the tomb after jesus had risen from the dead it actually wasn't peter it was john i guess john was faster but peter was the first guy who went in first guy who went in and saw the empty tomb where jesus body once laid it was peter who was so excited again it's kind of a funny story so excited again to see jesus jesus appeared on the shore after he'd risen from the dead peter jumps out of the boat that they're all in and swims to shore 
just so excited to see Jesus. In the midst of the greatest suffering the world has ever seen, Peter watched Jesus persevere, endure. Now, Jesus did it as an example for us, for what we are to do, how we're going to follow him as we follow his steps. But don't miss the bigger purpose in it. Look at verse 21. The bigger purpose is Christ suffered for you. Everything Jesus did for you. He did it as an example, but he also did it as a sacrifice for you. Look at verse 23 and 24. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus willingly endured unjust suffering because he knew who the ultimate authority was. Commentator John Gill says, he commended his spirit to God his father and committed his cause to him to vindicate it in what way he should think fit who he knew was the judge of all the earth, that he would do right. He committed himself to the Lord because he knew everything the Lord does would be right. Another old Bible scholar named Adam Clark said this, He suffered, but not on account of any evil he had either done or said. In deed and word, he was immaculate, and yet he was exposed to suffering. Expect the same, and when it comes, bear it in the same spirit. This is how believers still follow in Jesus' steps today, by committing ourselves to God as the ultimate authority. Overall, over our governing authorities, over our bosses, next week over our husbands, weeks to come over church leaders, over every, every authority that God has established, Christians are to submit to His authority first and foremost, and ultimately, the authority of God as judge. Now, Should we pursue justice on this earth? In the sense of biblical justice, yeah, absolutely. The Bible is absolutely clear about that. We should speak up for those who have no voice. We should protect and care for those who are seen as the least of these. We should work hard to shine the light in the darkness. But don't think that you can overcome the ways of the world by using the same tactics. Let me say that again because I think it's important. Don't think that you can overcome, that you can be God's new special people by behaving just like the world behaves. We can't overcome the darkness by using darkness. Two wrongs can never make a right. Do you understand what I'm saying? We can't use the same tactics. When Jesus was reviled, what did he do? Did he yell back? No. This word, that word revile means vilify. They said all kinds of things about Jesus, things that were untrue. Did he defend himself boldly? Did he get up and strike them down? Did he yell back at them? No, he didn't. He did not revile in return. When Jesus suffered, did he threaten his captors? Gosh, even even Satan knew that Jesus, in the the snap of a finger, the saying of a word, could call down 10,000 angels to be with him. But Jesus didn't do that. He didn't threaten in return. He made an intentional and conscious choice to endure because he knew that there was more at stake than his own comfort. Your eternal salvation was on the line and it meant more to Jesus than his own well-being. Is it possible then that Peter means for us to do the same thing? Is it possible that Peter wants us to see that salvation is more important than even our own well-being? Could he really be saying that? Look at verse 24 and 25. I think he is. 
This is how far Jesus was willing, ago, willing to go to prove his love to the tree. We sang about it this morning in several songs. To the tree. He was willing to prove, to put his love, his life on the line that much to show it. Tree, you can get that meaning cross, wood, the wooden cross. Jesus bore our sins as a substitute and we are healed by his wounds. That's what this, these verses are saying. He willingly submitted himself to death. Verse 25 says, you were, because you were straying like sheep. He did it for you. He endured unjust suffering for you. He gave himself up to suffering in that way, to even death unjustly, in order to return us back. Return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The suffering of believers, guys, it doesn't earn salvation. Unjust, enduring unjust suffering doesn't earn you salvation before the Lord. It doesn't even guarantee salvation for anybody else. But God, in his sovereign wisdom, uses that kind of suffering, he says, to bring straying sheep back to the shepherd and overseer of their souls. God uses it. Peter says, it is a gracious thing. The conduct of believers in the midst of suffering is a picture. It's a picture to a watching world of who Jesus is and what kind of effect he has on someone's life. Again, you suffer justly for something you did wrong, you deserve it. But when we suffer for something we don't deserve, something incredible happens. People see a picture of Jesus. People see a picture of a guy who bore our sins and died on a cross. He gave himself up to unjust suffering and death in order to return us back because we were straying like sheep. And he did all of this for a purpose. And he listed here, he, he bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might do two things, die to sin and live to righteousness. Charles Spurgeon says, he who bore my sins in his own body on the tree took all my debts and paid them for me. And now I'm dead to those debts. They have no power over me. I'm dead to my sins. Christ has suffered instead of me. I have nothing to do with them. They are gone as much as if they had never been committed. That's a picture of what we're getting in this text this morning. We die to sin. Now we know that that old nature still is there and there's a battle happening, but we are no longer bound to that. We are not slaves to that sin anymore. So have you died to sin? We die to sin when a greater passion fills our life. A passion for the Lord Jesus Christ that is greater than our previous passion to sin. Have we died to it? Are we dying to sin? Are we doing this regularly? Are we putting off the old ways of the flesh? Glance back at the beginning of chapter 2. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Are we putting these things away more and more? Is our life marked by a passion for Christ more than a passion for sin? Or are we continuing to stray like sheep? Are we living to righteousness? Are we following in his steps? Are you patiently enduring suffering? And again, there are moments when we need to leave that sort of situation. But Peter's not saying to do that at the first hint on a whim. He's not saying that we're allowed to do that just because we don't like the policies or because we don't like the rules or the person, even an unjust master. Because he's saying that when we bear under unjust suffering, we look like a clear picture of Jesus. 
No matter what happens as a result of that suffering, though, verse 24 assures us Jesus overcomes it. He says, by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus fixes those things, maybe not in the moment, maybe not in this life, but he makes all things right. Jesus suffered in our place so that we might die to sin and live to the opposite, to righteousness. We might live to Christ. In doing so, we return to the the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Question to leave us with this morning. Do we trust Jesus enough to submit ourselves to his ordained authority? And I'll get a little more specific based on the text, the context of it. Do we trust Jesus enough to submit ourselves even to unjust authority? Again, there are moments when we cannot submit to that, when they are asking us to do something against God. But there are lots of moments when he says, bear under it, because it is a gracious thing. When you do this and endure, you are a picture of Jesus. You are walking in his steps. Brothers and sisters, again, I don't know the future. I don't know what this is going to look like. And we need the divine wisdom of God and his spirit in us to know the difference of when to stand and when to submit. But I'll I'll leave us again with what I left us with last week. If we refuse to submit to the Lord, first and foremost, you can forget trying to submit to your bad boss or your rotten husband or your bad pastor or your really bad government. You can forget it. It's not going to happen. We have to submit to the Lord. And so if we are submitting to the Lord, we're also going to submit to the authority that he has divinely and sovereignly placed over us. And we do it with all respect and we do it as unto the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. God, this is hard stuff. There's there's no denying that it's hard. And so, Lord, this I think that it's, sort of intentional in the sense that we have to rely on your spirit. We can't just in our own grit, just grind our teeth and push through another day. It has to be done in your spirit. We have to be walking in your steps to suffer unjustly. And Lord, we also need to know, like Daniel, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Esther, and all those others, Lord, who defied tyrants, Lord, we need to know when to do that, when to take that up. So, Lord, we're relying on your Spirit to show us when to do these things. But the overarching theme that Peter is getting at here, that your word, enduring word, is telling us, is that we need to have a heart of submission, even when it's hard. No matter what situation we find ourselves in, Lord, that we would first ask, how can I submit respectfully in this? And, Lord, and when we do that, what what an incredible, fantastic thing happens we show the picture of Christ in a way that may be more visible and bold than any other way. Because only someone whose life has really been changed would act that way. Only someone who has been converted genuinely would say, no, I'm going to stay here because God has called me to it. And in doing so, Lord, it's not only a gracious thing to us, but it is an evangelistic tool that you use to show your glory. So help us to submit to you this morning. Maybe we are resisting that. And as we sing this final song together, Lord, maybe you would do a work in our hearts where we would fully engage and submit to you and your spirit. Maybe it's for the first time for salvation, Lord, that we have heard that message of Jesus willingly going to the tree and bearing unjust death for us. And Lord, we want to respond to that message and be saved. Lord, maybe you want to do that. Or maybe, Lord, you just are reaffirming in us the need to submit. Lord, maybe there are bosses in this room 
who can learn from this too and to treat their employees as Jesus. And certainly, Lord, there are employees here who we need to just treat our bosses as Jesus because you are our ultimate authority overall. So help us to submit to you in all of these things. In your name we pray. Amen.